This week's episode contains binaural recordings. Listen with headphones if you can. Sounds curious. Hey there, welcome back to the Sounds Curious Podcast. Podcast for you, our adventurous listeners. So quick, where are we right now? You hear the waves crashing at the shore. Where is it, the waves crashing at the shore? In today's episode, we're going to bring you the intriguing story of one man's quest to capture the psychologically ultimate seashore on tape and look at all the implications and the widespread impact that this man's quest has had on our everyday listening. It makes sense to come to the seashore in late August, the end of summer here in the Northern Hemisphere. But before we get to that, we have got a lot brewing here at the podcast. So let's talk about that for a second. We have been incredibly busy here at the Banshee Media Podcast Network, Sounds Curious Podcast, as well as our parent company, Banshee Media and our sister production collective, Improvised Alchemy. We are very active this month preparing for our fall tours and all of the places that we'll be presenting. Now, in the episode with Ellen Waterman, and undoubtedly at earlier moments in the show, I've mentioned Improvised Alchemy. Now... Improvised Alchemy is the production collective, so the group of collaborators and artists associated with Banshee Media that creates site-specific installations, transmedia performances, innovative pieces that combine theater and computer programming and live musical performance, dance performance, performance art, So in essence, Improvised Alchemy creates the work, and Banshee Media is our broadcasting, podcasting, and streaming. So together, moving forward with these companies, Improvised Alchemy will be heading out on the road this fall uh, with yours truly, 
and we will be doing the world premiere of a piece that I featured way back on the pilot episode of this podcast. Uh, my own transmedia suite for improvising pianist visual installation and performance art will be receiving a world premiere at the Sonorities Festival of Contemporary Music in Belfast, and that'll be on November 28th, 2016. So if you're anywhere near the Sark Center at Queen's University Belfast, drop in. We would love to see you. I will be performing the piece live, and it will feature video installation with interactive visuals programmed by our in-house programmer and design work by many of our in-house visual artists and performance artists. We'll be doing the American premiere shortly thereafter at the Highways Performance Space in Santa Monica, December 9th and 10th of 2016. We are very gratified to be both closing out the Sonorities Festival this year, performing the last slot of the festival, and we'll also be closing out Highways 2016 performance season with our American premiere of Sympathetic Resonance. And that will feature performances by members of the entire Improvised Alchemy crew. So if you are in anywhere near Los Angeles in December, please come on by. We will have a gallery show in the gallery there leading up to our performances. And we hope to be giving live talks and workshops. We're also in talks right now to do a week-long residency in Sweden. So we'll keep you posted on that. The wonderful thing about having a production collective of artists and a publishing, streaming, and broadcasting company is that we generate our own content. The other nice thing is that we get to meet our audiences live out in the world. So we will keep you posted anytime I and the rest of the crew are on the road. And like always, we try and sit down with some of the most interesting people at those events and festivals and conferences to bring it to all to you. So we'll be recording at the Sonorities Festival, we'll be recording at Highways, and we'll be sure to bring you the best of all of that.
But today, we are going to dive into a subject, return to some previous conversations about field recordings, and take a look at one of the truly strange innovations of what we sometimes call here on the podcast, late capitalism. Anyway, obviously we here at the podcast did not invent the term late capitalism. We uh, take it from Frederick Jameson and his book on postmodernism, the cultural logic of late capitalism. And since we've thrown that word around a lot, and we've also introduced the topic in conversations about field recordings and cultural appropriation and schizophonia, we thought we would turn today to some articles that have been popping up recently in the news feed, most notably at Atlas Obscura, so over at atlasobscura.com. And their article, which was published on April 5th, so earlier this year, by Kara Jaimo, called The Man Who Recorded, Tamed, and Then Sold Nature Sounds to America. And, of course, the subtitle, A Forgotten 1970s-era Hippie Polymath Named Irv Teibel Created the Soothing Vibe of the Great Outdoors. So this is a really interesting story about one man with an idea of trying to create or recreate on recorded sound the actual experience of, say, being in an ocean. And the way that he came to this project and what's happened since have changed the way we experience sound. Now, I said when we began listening to this wave seashore sound underneath us, I asked where we were. The obvious answer is the seashore. We're listening to waves come in. But we could just as easily, in 2016, be sitting in a waiting room at a spa waiting for our treatments and hearing this sound. This sound could be programmed into our white noise machine. This sound is downloadable on the internet. In recordings that promise to help you relax, to soothe you, help you sleep better, In fact, sounds of ocean waves are so ubiquitous now that we really take them for granted. But do these recordings really sound like the ocean? Do they have anything to do with the actual ocean? As we'll see in the case of Irving Teibel and the environment's recordings and the one we're listening to right now entitled the psychologically ultimate seashore. 
While these recordings may be marketed as nature sounds, as environmental sounds, again, to help us with everything from sleep to privacy to a reconnection with nature even in our urban environments, wouldn't you think that we would, at the bottom of it all, find nature recordings? Sort of. But as you'll see in this case, this is a technologically mediated nature that is more real than nature itself. I want to focus a little bit on some of these terms we've been throwing around in the podcast and some and really uh, bring a bit more light to some of the subjects that we've encountered earlier. Now, way back in the episode on schizophonia, we really addressed head on some of the cultural appropriation issues that exist when Western recording engineers or field recording artists or scholars when folks go out and do live field recordings of other people other cultures musical performances but what about when we here in the west go out and record environments now On this show, if you listen at all, you know we feature a lot of field recordings from Radio Appery and other sources because we like to get our field recordings straight from the source. But for a whole movement that began in the late 1960s and continues to this day, the realistic capturing of environments out in the world was secondary to presenting a kind of acoustically perfect nature. Now, for those of us living in the Anthropocene, which is a very big, fancy way of saying the era of man-made climate change, the fact that we routinely listen to nature with quotes around it recordings to connect us to the natural world is almost frightening. But our tendency to do this can be traced to a very specific person, a very specific time, and a very specific purpose. And in his story, we encounter threads of many topics that we've tried to engage in this program and I think having a look at the strange and wonderful history of Irving Solomon Teibel's recordings the environment series which of which he released 10 between the years of 1969 and 1979 and which spawned more imitators than I could possibly mention here Go to any of a number of websites where you can play, you can stream nature sounds, and you'll almost always find an ocean. 
wave sounds, seashore. Sometimes they'll feature some seagulls for extra authenticity. But most often, what's happened to those recordings before you clicked play is a lot more than you realize and speaks in much broader terms about how and why we listen. What some listening practices represent and why we shouldn't at all be surprised that in an age in which water is bottled and sold, something like the ocean and the sounds of the ocean would be packaged, perfected, and resold to us. So, we begin with the story of Irving Teibel. And the introduction to this article on Atlas Obscura is so wonderful, I'm going to read it um, word for word. Uh, And again, I will feature uh, links to this article and several articles about these recordings over at BansheeMedia.com. So the article opens... In the 1970s, you could buy a pet rock or a lava lamp. People had even pawned the Brooklyn Bridge a few times. But no one sold the ocean until Irv Teibel. If you flip on a waterfall to fall asleep, if you keep rainymood.com in your bookmarks, if you associate well-being with the sound of streams and crickets or wonder why the beach never sounds quite as tranquil as you imagine, It's because of Teibel. New York's least likely media mogul was the mastermind behind environments, a series of records he swore were, quote, the future of music, end quote. From 1969 to 1979, he took the best parts of nature, turned them up to 11, engraved them on 12-inch records, and sold them back to us by the millions. He had a musician's ear, an artist's heart, and a salesman's tongue. And his work lives on in yoga studios, sky mall catalogs, and the sea blue eyes of Brian Eno. If you haven't heard of him, it's only because he designed his own legacy to be invisible. This is the story of a man who tried to capture the world and really wanted us to listen. So, right away from that introduction, we get a sense that This is a very sophisticated cultural phenomenon that has, as we mentioned earlier, far-reaching cultural implications, not just for arts and music, but also for recordings in general and how we thought about listening. Obviously, here it sounds curious. We're very interested in people's listening practices, how and why. So, Irving Solomon Teibel's story is, in essence, 
a story of our own cultural drive towards sound in late capitalism. So Irving Teibel was born, and I guess his friends called him Irv, so hopefully he won't mind me calling him Irv for the rest of this episode. Irv Teibel was born in Buffalo, New York in 1938. As he got older, he zigzagged between disciplines and cities, picked up new technologies. He studied applied science at Rochester Institute of Technology. He then studied photograph, uh, photography at the Art Center School in Los Angeles. And oddly enough, public relations for the U.S. Army in Germany and publishing in London. So here's someone who has a great command of technology and recording technology of obviously visual representation and design, given his photography background, public relations and publishing. So monetizing these cultural objects was second nature to him. Most interesting to me in his story was that while he was stationed in Stuttgart in the 1950s, he was very interested in the local scene. Now, for those of you who've been to Germany, you know that Germany has a very lively musical culture, um, many, many performances on any given night of all manner of music from the most outrageous experimental contemporary classical to the pinnacle of classical music performance. You can find it all there and everything in between. So as he dug into the music scene, he began studying electronic music and splicing tapes with music concrete fans at a radio station. Now we've mentioned music concrete here at Sounds Curious. It was a movement in, well, with its origins in the 1940s and earlier really, but music concrete really emerges after the Second World War, as many of the recording and um, editing technologies became available after the war, it was often radio engineers, so not folks with a music composition background, say in classical music or even folk music, but engineers who thought about sound recorded sound, broadcasted sound, and edited sound largely. This movement of creating original pieces using previously recorded sounds is fascinating, and its relationship to Irv Teibel cannot be under-emphasized here because the way he thought about sound was very material. So he was swimming in a lot of artistic background, a lot of technology background, and then a very rich cultural environment with a really interesting set of skills. Now, one of the things that you find very quickly when you're talking to, say, a recording engineer, is that every recording is limited. Now, my voice is being digitally recorded right now, which means that my voice is coming through a microphone, which is translating the signal of my voice through a cable into a digital interface. That interface is then digitizing and transferring my voice 
to a hard drive on my computer, which means that my voice has gone from sound to electron to code before you've ever even heard it. And that's before we get to what happens on your end when you listen. In every step of the process, that sound is affected. How you listen and with what kind of technology you listen will affect the sound. So for recording engineers, one of our great frustrations is always our inability to capture the broadest possible range of sounds. Now, when you're standing on a beach and you're listening to the ocean, you might not be aware of some of the subtleties that are affecting you. For instance, waves on a beach create waves of infrasound. Now, infrasound is sounds that are too low for us to hear with our ears, but infrasound is picked up by our bodies. We feel it. It's partly responsible for the reason why spending time at the ocean is so transformative. That and the ionization of the air and all of the effects on the landscape that the ocean brings. None of those things can ever be transmitted in a recording. But if we take a minute to listen to a real beach, now that you've been listening to the psychologically ultimate seashore for a while, you'll pretty soon see that real field recordings of the ocean differ greatly from what you've been hearing all this time. Let's listen to a few. Thank <laughs> you. 
So as you can hear in those three very different field recordings made at three very different seashores under three very different sets of circumstances, there's an awful lot of extraneous noise. If you're listening with headphones, you can actually sort of hear the cars drive by you. Part of why I chose those examples from over at Radio Apparee, and again, links to all the sound files in today's episode will be over at the show notes at BansheeMedia.com. Part of the reason that I chose those was because they have all sorts of things that make them less than psychologically ultimate seashores. Now, we left off with Irv Tybel as he was gathering a whole lot of diverse experience in the arts and public relations and marketing. The 1960s saw him living in Manhattan, and after all of his experiments with sound, his experience with music concrète, he found himself longing for more of a connection to the natural world in his own urban environment. So, thrown into this very avant-garde city, Manhattan, with a very diverse artistic background, he longed for more of a connection to the natural environment. Even though he really loved his urban life, he was becoming increasingly ADD, let's say. That would probably be the word that we would describe it nowadays. He had a hard time concentrating. Now, right around that time, he decided to take a microphone out to the surf at Brighton Beach. He really had been working with sound for a long time. He was trying to record the sounds of the ocean and bring them back into his Manhattan apartment so that he could listen to them and try and quiet his mind. Now he was very familiar with the work of Hermann Ludwig Ferdinand von Helmholtz, who was a 19th century German polymath. So interesting that they would be, uh, that Irv Teibel would feel connected to him. Uh, This von Helmholtz, a very influential theoretician, Uh, was convinced that natural sounds, especially sounds of the wind or the ocean, could have great psychological benefits. Of course, the problem, as we mentioned earlier, is that finding a way to represent the calming sounds of the ocean without the distraction of traffic or human environmental noise, and of course, given that every microphone, every recording device, every recording method will limit the frequencies that we hear and our experience of the ocean and the sounds of the ocean when we are there is much more than just the sonic frequencies that we can hear. So in essence, Tybal was trying to create an imaginary seashore the seashore in his mind, the seashore that was regular and constant, whose sound waves could easily be followed with a relaxed attention. So not long after going out to record the Brighton Beach surf, 
he decided in conversations with a friend of his who worked in psychoacoustics, the idea of doing a project in which he actually tried to create recordings that were designed to affect the human psychology. Which meant that rather thinking as a recording artist or a sound artist or a field recording artist or even a recording engineer, he was taking the psychology of contemporary marketing techniques. If you have any doubts about the influence of psychology on marketing uh, in the 1960s, uh, go have a look at Mad Men. So into this era of consumer marketing comes this idea of creating a recording not designed to be music to be listened to, rather a recording designed with the purpose of bringing out a very particular state of mind. This was a consumer product like a paper towel or a car that we could use to help ourselves get from point A to point B. In the case of a paper towel, from having a mess to not having a mess. In the case of a car, from point A on the map to point B on the map. And in the case of the psychologically ultimate seashore and all the environment's recordings after it, this particular consumer product was designed to get you from point A, feeling disconnected and stressed in your urban environment, in your very high stress job, in your very difficult and busy schedule, with a kind of timeless, relaxed, stress-free, acoustic environment. It was the perfect combination of sound theory, acoustic psychology, recording engineering, and as we will hear in just a moment, algorithms. Because what makes the psychologically ultimate seashore ultimate is that it is not a single recording. It is in fact many, many, many of the original Brighton Beach surf tape recordings fed into a computer, adjusted ultimately to create a very curated artistic interpretation of a psychologically satisfying seashore. So you notice we've gotten a long way from a microphone and a recording device at the beach to a consumer product designed to help you in your everyday life with your stress, your need for privacy, your need for relaxation, and your need for a connection to the natural world despite your urban isolation from it by putting on 
a record album. Now, talking about an album or a series of albums as a consumer product like a paper towel might seem on the surface that I am dismissing it. And I don't mean for that to be the case at all. In fact, if anything, it is the marketing and the way in which Tybal formulated his business model with these particular recordings that is so particularly impressive. Now, part of the reason that I can say that these albums are consumer products is in part because of the way they were released. Tybal put together the original compilation or, shall we say, algorithmic perfection of the Brighton Beach surf recordings with a partner of his, Louis Gerstmann, who was working at Bell Labs and he developed computers that translated speech to text and had a lot to do with sound and sound theory in contemporary computing. So it was Teibel and Gerstmann who fed these original tapes into the computer and after filtering and tweaking and all sorts of stuff, they came up with a sound that they really thought perfectly captured this idealized recording. They continued to edit it with overdubs and delays and things like that until they really had exactly what they wanted, the idealized, relaxing, ocean, seashore, a kind of hyper-perfect seashore. But they weren't released on a traditional record label either. The Environments series was released not under Tybal or Gerstmann's name, but under the name Syntonic Research. Now that is a direct reference to the psychoacoustic and the acoustic psychology behind these records, as well as a kind of corporatization of sound, a corporatization both of the recordings that were individually compiled and fed and in essence surveyed to produce a perfect computer representation. But at the same time, they were timed 
to promote a kind of relaxed, hazy attention, very different from the kind of attention most musical records require. Obviously, when we're listening to music, we tend to give it an awful lot of attention, unless we're using it as background, in which case it should often be something we don't like so much. So if we look at these albums, complete with the most perfect nature photograph taking up the vast majority of the album cover, and for those of you who don't know what old vinyl album covers used to look like, have a look at atlasobscura.com. Again, we'll have the links up for you. And check out this album cover. It's very, very minimal for the time, very simple fonts. Proclaiming on the front, this is new concepts in stereo sound. Now on the back, there is absolutely no explanation of who did these recordings, what these recordings are, where they come from, the process of making them, anything about their conception. Instead, the back is plastered with anonymous reviews in trippy fonts, very popular in the day, that say things like, better than a tranquilizer, cured my insomnia, play it continually, and my personal favorite in hot pink, infinitely flexible. These are for sure things that would promote a consumer product, not so much music. As a musician, if somebody told me that I cured their insomnia, I don't know if I would take it as a compliment. So this was obviously not anyone's thinking. And by promoting these as produced by Syntonic Research, they very clearly are associating themselves with a science of acoustics rather than the sort of natural environmental recordings of naturalists, environmentalists, and others. These are very much scientifically created acoustic experiences, not to be enjoyed, rather to be used. If we look further on the album cover, it tells us that the listening tests, we're not sure who these were done on or why, pronounced that these recordings were hypnotic, amazingly effective, it actually works, and I think the most cringeworthy of all, sex used to be boring. Again, not necessarily what I would expect to see as a review on the back of an album. But this was very much the way Irv Tybal wanted these things to be marketed. If we look at some of the ads at the time, we see a a literal headless man. We see a photograph of a very sophisticatedly dressed for the day man in a suit jacket and turtleneck. Very hip, obviously, very audiophile. But instead of a head, he has a light bulb. The message, this is not music to be listened to. This is acoustic products to be used to bring about a state of mind. 
more successful studying, more productivity, better days at work, more relaxing times when we're stressed out with the family. All of these elements went in to create a phenomenon that is still with us today. Again, walk into any urban environment and you often find their use of sound recording to control the mood or the perception of public space. In many ways, the idea of using sound to create a kind of favorable, productive consciousness has its roots all the way back in Irving Solomon Tybal. Now, if you listen to earlier recordings on this podcast, in which we talked about gothic psychedelia and the war on consciousness, you know that roughly corresponding to our period of postmodern late capitalism, and by late capitalism, we mean that time in which corporate organized capitalism is plundering its own culture repurposing, repackaging, and reselling that old culture back to the very people who made it. So if we think about it in this way, the psychologically ultimate seashore is in many ways the late capitalist ultimate seashore. It is a seashore stripped of irregularity, of surprise, of fear or anxiety or stress, It's a seashore that we can use to our betterment, to increase our productivity in our capitalist society. It is once again a tool to be used, produced not by a sound engineer or sound artist or polymath, but rather by combining, smoothing, polishing, tweaking, editing, reformatting and reselling one of the most ancient sounds to fall on human ears, the sound of waves breaking at the ocean, and to, in a sense, give us mastery of that ocean to allow us, by simply pressing play, to have that ocean at our disposal at every moment which leads to all the dangerous thinking around plundering other cultures that we've seen in other episodes. So the next time you download a Nature Sounds app on your iPhone to listen to as you fall asleep, next time you sit in a waiting room with a white noise machine, or loop nature sounds in your studio so that you have company while you're editing or studying. Think about the man who, by bringing his tape recorder over and over and over and over and over again to the same seashore, found his ultimate seashore, shared it with the rest of us, provided an interesting new model for a perceived future of recording, a function 
for audio recording in our capitalist society. And when you go to the beach, listen to how different it is from the psychologically ultimate one. That's it for us for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will see you again real soon for your next Sounds Curious podcast. And hopefully we will see you in coming months out there on the road. In the meantime, take care.